BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, June 25th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. A while ago, you interviewed Karen Bondar for the show. Yeah, we talked about sex in the animal kingdom. Yeah, so what happens after sex? Uh, you just go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, or sometimes there's a baby. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, somebody sometimes becomes a mom. And so, in a sense, Karen wanted to follow up on Wild Sex with the sequel. Uh, and this time it's called Wild Moms, Motherhood in the Animal Kingdom. And one of Karen's strengths is that she really is a great science storyteller and she is not afraid to go the bold route. And this book is no different. And I think it's actually going to be turned into a series eventually, too, which would be cool. Um, if you don't know Dr. Bondar's work, uh, she has a PhD in freshwater population ecology. Um, but she's probably best known for her series, Wild Sex, uh, which reached over 60 million viewers. Um, and she also has a TED Global talk uh, on the topic called The Birds and the Bees Are Just the Beginning. Um, check it out. It's it's pretty awesome. Now, I know from our first chat, not to make assumptions on how the animal kingdom operates in these territories based on how we operate as human beings. Does that hold in this conversation? Yes. I mean, there are a lot of differences. Uh, I mean, there are some sort of general principles that sort of apply. And, you know, sort of like one of them is that, you know, in general, biological females tend to have a cost, uh, a bigger cost. So they don't have, you know, as many gametes, uh, whereas the biological males, you know, are, are they have their their sperm is cheaper. And so, you know, but the, but the, you know, the problem there is that, that that they don't necessarily have a guarantee that their offspring are their offspring. So, you know, there are some of these commonalities. But I think what's really interesting is that um, some of the things that we really think are unique to even our own individual experiences really are mirrored in many different ways in the animal kingdom, um, in, in animal species that you wouldn't even think of. Um, and so, you know, that that to me is 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 an interesting kind of look. And, and as as a you know huge proponent of evolution, it's really interesting to look at comparative biology to try to understand where some of our own tendencies come from um, and where some of those, you know, initial building block blocks may have begun. I guess it's true what my mom said. Uh, women are always working harder for less. 
<laughs> yes, yes, yes. I mean, I guess that's true across the entire animal kingdom. And, you know, Karen would know more than um, most of us do. She has four children of her own. And so she's she's well versed in motherhood. So let's take a short break. And we'll be back with my interview with Karen Bondar. This week's episode is brought to you by Udemy, the largest marketplace for online learning. Whether you want to learn something new or just sharpen your skills, Udemy has an extensive library of over 65,000 courses taught by expert instructors. Ever find yourself thinking, I wish I could do that? With Udemy, you can. From web development to digital marketing to Japanese cooking courses, Udemy has something for everyone. While other online learning companies charge hundreds of dollars per class, Udemy courses start at just $11.99. Plus, each course comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee for risk-free learning. Every day, students from around the world choose Udemy to discover new passions, expand their skills, and even change careers. Improve your life through learning. Download the Udemy app to learn anytime or visit ude.my slash inquiring today. That's ude.my slash inquiring. This week's episode is brought to you by KiwiCo, which makes super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math so much fun. My son has been using a KiwiCo project to build a hand, almost like a crane that you see it in game at an arcade. He built the, the hand that moves in just about 30 minutes, and he's been going around sort of grabbing things with this claw all week long, and he can't wait for the next crate. KiwiCo's mission is to provide the next generation of innovators with the tools and foundation they need to become creative problem solvers and critical thinkers. With five different types of projects, there is something for kids of all different ages, from age two to three, all the way up to 16 plus. They create hands-on projects, and trust me, they are really hands-on, that are not only super fun, but also educational in a really cool way. KiwiCo delivers convenience. Absolutely everything you needed is in the box, which means no extra trips for tools or nuts and bolts. Gifting a KiwiCo subscription is easy. It'll make that kid in your life smarter and quite possibly make them into the next inventor. KiwiCo is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids, visit KiwiCo.com slash minds. That's KiwiCo.com, K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash minds to try KiwiCo for free. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. So this is your second book. Uh, the first one was about wild sex. <laughs> um, yeah. And, <laughs> and sex leads to reproduction in a lot of cases, not always. <laughs> kind of the aftermath, isn't it? <laughs> the so, inevitable. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about what prompted you to, you know, do a kind of sequel to wild sex, like the, you know, what happens after. Yeah, that's a great question. I I ended up the wild sex book kind of looking briefly at the the literal aftermath product of our sex lives because that's basically what offspring are. Um and I and I loved a lot of the stories that I was getting. And as a mom myself, I have a, I have four kids and I'm always sort of in my own mind asking questions about how animals get the, the things done that we do as human moms. I mean, how does it look when uh, a, a mummy pig 
has a, you know, hungry piglet? Or how does it look when a little baby giraffe needs to learn how to chew on leaves? I mean, I don't know. And in the mammal world, I mean, where we don't necessarily see monogamy or even male involvement at all, it's really falls to the to the moms to get most of these jobs done. And so it, you know, it just sort of seemed natural to go from this, you know, wild sex where we have kind of some of these crazy um, strategies. And in the mammalian case, sometimes we have the males who are dominating females and the females don't necessarily get the 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 long end of the of the stick, if you will, because they are left with uh, not only the expensive gametes, obviously, but the the total burden of childcare. So it's kind of a neat way to look at how that has played out evolutionarily for a diverse range of animals. Yeah. And so, you know, in, in a time now when um, parenting, at least among the human species, uh, is very diverse and there are all kinds of different forms of parenting. And in fact, you know, we've talked on this show about how that might change in the next few years with um, gene editing and sort of just sort of the you know improvements in, in gene technology, how, you know, may, it's possible that, you know, when my son is ready to have kids, he'll just grab some skin cells and <laughs> produce some offspring somewhere. That's like a whole other topic. But so I wanted to just start start with saying, you know, what is your definition of motherhood? And why, you know, why did you choose? Is it is it is, is there like a, a pretty standard definition of femalehood in in the kind of biological world? And, and what does that mean? And is that tied to motherhood? So I just wanted to just Touch a little bit yeah. on that. So the the sort of basal roots of what it even means to be a mom. It's something I definitely um, philosophize on uh, quite a bit, and sort of. And I guess that's why the, this book ended up being very mammal centric. Is that you know most mammals have a pretty predictable scenario of you know male gender has penis, female genus uh, genus has <laughs> vagina. That's a little bit of a tongue twister, um, and. And the males give out very cheap, abundant gametes. The females receive these very cheap ones and couple them to their very expensive ones um, and just state internally. So, uh, yes, definitely what it means to be a mammal and a mother is different than, say, what it means to be a bird and a mother um, because birds have something that's that's different. We don't necessarily see penises and vaginas. We morely see these things called cloacas, which are um, general openings down there. And birds, everything is kind of a little more equal because um, the females still do have the expensive gamete, the egg, but they lay the eggs very, very soon after fertilization. Um, and so the development, instead of being inside a mother's womb, is actually inside a nest. And this allows fathers then to have um, more of a, of a legit opportunity to do something. And that's why we do see a lot more parental care, fatherly care in the bird world. But when we leave the kingdom animalia, well, mind you, we don't even need to leave it yet. We can go to the invertebrates, which do things that are that are also very, um, you know, there's some where we can say, yep, that's the male. He's got the penis. He's got the sperm. The eggs uh, are, are, are a similar thing. Although with things like broadcast spawning, where you can just spew your gametes out into the outside world and hope they find a mate, you know, we see a whole bunch of things. But to your question about gender and the sort of basal roots, you know, if we look at the fungi 
or um, the kingdom Archaea, or even if we go to the plant world, the algae world, we see sexual strategies that don't look at all like male and female. We see three sexes, you know, tons of sexes, you know, multiple strains that instead of actually do this exchange of gametes, as you said, just sort of meld into each other a little bit, grab a couple skin cells and become part of me. So we are very biased in the way we approach motherhood now. Maybe with the advent of some of these crazy technologies you're thinking about, that will change. Yeah, I mean, and, and certainly in terms of, you know, the the family unit, we've seen a lot of change in the last hundred years amongst the human species it's become uh, much more common for, you know, single sex couples, for example, to become parents and, and, and so forth, even using, you know, their genetic material uh, and so forth, which, you know, is, is a kind of in some ways, like, you know, very different from the rest of the mammalian world, as I as I understand it. I mean, unless are there any other exceptions in the mammalian world? where there is a way in which the gender of the parents doesn't sort of conform to our traditional notions of male and female? Yeah, there's definitely exceptions to the rule. Um, there's a lot, most for the most part, no, but I, that's why I love biology so much is that there's always animals that don't make sense in the greater context of what we would expect them to be doing. Um, so we do see some species where fatherly care, for example, in tamarins, I mean, these are primates. These are small tree-dwelling primates that um, live in the South American and um, Latin American countries. And they usually, females usually give birth to twins, almost always as a rule. And males play a a very big role in helping to care for the twins, you know, because of the fact that the females just don't have enough um, body size to to carry around two babies at a time. So pragmatically speaking, that's a way for for these specific males to to gain a greater role. Um, As far as say, same sex couples that that aim to become families in terms of having um, offspring together. I mean, I've heard of a lot of examples, I've read about a lot of examples in the bird world for where females um, that are in long-term partnerships, things like albatross and seagulls, um, will actually, you know, kind of do something quite akin to a human lesbian couple seeking to have a baby, going to a sperm bank, you know, female albatross do do something quite similar. I mean, when you think about it, most males in the animal kingdom, whether you're an albatross, a mammal or, you know, a human, males are pretty darn willing to give it up for you. <laughs> you know, it's, but it's simple. Um, and so, you know, females don't have a problem finding sperm. If they want to be with a female partner long term, they can just go get sperm collected and go and be on their merry way. And that actually we do see quite a bit. That's fascinating. Are there albatross couples that are heterosexual? And sort yes. of like, yeah, so 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 what what do you think? causes the decision or 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 sort of the you know, do you think it's it's a biological thing or do you think it's about um sort mm-hmm. of being in the right place in the right time and meeting you know it's just i'm just yeah. fascinated by that. i know we're anthropomorphizing here a lot but you know it's kind totally of fun to do that. you know it's kind of the way that i work actually i think it's a pretty <laughs> powerful tool when you don't get too carried away with it but i think to your question, all of the above. Um, I think as humans, we we tend to forget that, you know, when we, we look at ourselves, we see everybody's individual personality and we see everybody's individual characteristics. And, you know, you're a vegetarian who has this many children who lives in a in a yurt uh, versus, you know, you're a paleo diet person who has no children and lives in a mansion. Who knows? I mean, these are just basic 
differences between humans. And so we tend to not ascribe those kinds of differences to the rest of the animal kingdom, which is weird, especially when we're talking about animals that have fairly complex social behaviors like birds. Um, So, you know, it could be as simple an explanation as, you know, Mary the albatross simply doesn't really want to be with a male albatross. She would like to be with Polly, her partner. And, you know, whereas, you know, Jolene, the albatross is super hetero and loves her partner Paul and you know what I mean like it, it it sounds ridiculous to describe it that way and scientists hate it when I do things like that but just putting it into a context of like maybe that one albatross just doesn't like guys like who knows and we tend to not think about the ability of animals to do things like this as biologists we don't because we like to have them in neat and tidy little categories that we can label and that we can then use statistics on and things like that which we can but I think when you're kind of perplexed about this situation I think that's delightful because I think it is perplexing and that's the beauty of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of the issue is that from the biological perspective, we kind of want to, you know, obviously use an evolutionary framework to kind of explain a lot of these behaviors. And, you know, it's, it's harder to find an explanation that that sits well with sexual selection or natural selection, in which you have this kind of a same sex couple in, in a bird, for example, because we have this idea that, you know, the sexes are differentiated uh, in ways that are easily categorizable. You know, male, as you mentioned, you know, cheap sperm doesn't have to stick around, you know, females looking for resources, etc. So yeah, so it kind of, you know, I, I think that sometimes we need to sort of maybe rethink that model or or do we have to figure out ways uh, in which, I mean, it, you know, I could, I could, I could sort of give you a just so explanation of why for the albatross, it would be, you know, more, uh, you know, better for their offspring to have two females, because now you have, you know, two birds that are both invested in the care of these offspring, and maybe the offspring are more likely to live. Yep, I totally would agree. Yep, 100%. So let's talk a little bit about sort of this, this kind of idea of the cost of motherhood, and how in, in so many different species, um, motherhood seems to cost uh, the female a lot more than fatherhood seems to cost the male. Is that sort of universally true? Uh, and what are the species in which that's not true? And is there anything we can learn from how they solve that problem? Yeah, so this is this is a cool biological puzzle because females not only have the expensive gamete, we also, in the mammalian case, have the expensive job to do. Um, however, oh, so yeah, for the most part, it's sort of this inevitable truth that females will have much more work to do than males. And that's why, um, you know, the big advantage to females is that they know who their babies are. Um, and that's an advantage that males don't have, right? So males in the in internally fertilizing animals, um, that's the trade-off. So males simply don't know if they're more of their genetic material is in future generations. Females do. Now, there's this one really interesting case. It's not a mammal, but it's a fish. And this is a fairly complicated fish, the the, um, pipefishes and seahorses, where males are actually the ones who um, gestate, kind of. They have these very elaborate sacs, which can, in a parallel way, be um, analogous to um, a uterus. There's sort of these uteruses that form, females come and they, and they, put their eggs into the male's pouch slash uterus, and he fertilizes them right there. So that solves the problem for him of paternity uncertainty. 
He now knows that these babies belong to him and he is now going to actually take care of these babies in his pouch. Females no longer have to do anything. So this is another weird conundrum for these females because what usually happens in um, animals where where there's competition between males to get females' attention now there is competition between female pipefish and, uh, and and seahorses to, to get males' attention. So not only are the females producing the expensive eggs, they're also trying to get a male's attention and create or evolve, if you will, some kind of evolutionary structures that are going to make them more sexy. So this is kind of like a double lose for the females here. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know exactly what the specific answer is other than to say, in the seahorses, females, we don't see them getting too fancy. We don't see bird of paradise or peacock-like fanciness in these females because they don't have enough evolutionary energy, period. They have to make eggs, so they can't get too fancy. So um, coming back to sort of the mammalian world, uh, since it's sort of in some ways closest to our own experience uh, as humans of parenthood, um, what can you tell us about sort of the gestational period and how that affects the amount of care that a uh, a mother will give her child? So, for example, is there some kind of rule where we can say the longer the gestation, the fewer the offspring, the more the, the mother will care for the offspring once the, the offspring is born? Or does it really differ by species in, in, in using some other kind of rule? It certainly varies, um, but there's there are some overreaching um, generalizations that are definitely there. So you have um, species that are sort of more R-selected versus more K-selected, the ones that make uh, fewer offspring and give each one of those more care versus the ones that make a ton of offspring and just hope that a few of them survive. Um, so that's, you know, there are certain generalizations uh, out there. But I guess, yeah, for me, I... I like to kind of focus in on the on the animals that don't always adhere to these general expectations that that we might um, look for them to be doing. Uh, those are where I think the situations allow us to learn more about the evolutionary process because it certainly doesn't always need to go in a certain way. So yeah, will um, there are certain animals that always have very very short gestations? Things like the kangaroos and wallabies that have evolved in these very stochastic or unpredictable environments of Australia. So these are large mammals that actually only have a gestational period of a couple of weeks, like three weeks or something like that. And at three weeks, these little teeny neonate kangaroos um, sort of jet themselves out of mom's uterus and climb into her pouch. And that's actually specifically thought to have evolved in response to the fact that kangaroo babies will often have to be aborted, just kind of not, uh, we have to stop giving, providing care because resources are just too unpredictable. So this is an example of a strategy that's evolved to um, directly counter unpredictable conditions. And it's it, 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 so basically if a kangaroo mom has to abort uh, or, or get rid of a baby because situation, this, the environmental conditions are so bad, um, she will then have the opportunity later in the season to to generate another embryo. But three weeks of gestation is is pretty small compared to something like an elephant, which is two years. Yeah. 
So and sometimes, you know, we hear about the conditions during gestation having epigenetic effects, certainly, um, but sort of widespread effects on the babies eventually when they're born. So for example, under stressful conditions uh, in humans, uh, fetuses tend to develop in a way that uh, will help them adapt to a stressful situation. So for example, there's some cool research that we've actually talked about uh, on the show uh, using MRI scans of fetal brains uh, showing that uh, when moms are stressed, the kind of stress circuitry in the fetal brain becomes enhanced. And, and as a result, then presumably the babies are born in an environment that is unpredictable and they're better equipped to deal with it because, you know, of course, it has sort of in our modern world some negative consequences. But do we see something similar in, in other mammals? Yeah, we do, which is so cool. And this is an emerging area of work in primates. And so the bulk of work that's gone on to this end has happened in macaques. Um, and, and researchers are actually able to look at things like corticosterone and uh, stress, various stress hormones in moms. And um, even in some cases, artificially in, uh, inflate them and then look at both characteristics, you know, physiological characteristics um, on mom and offspring, but also behavioral characteristics. And what's kind of interesting um, in this kind of emerging area of depressive behaviors in primate moms and even abusive behaviors is that there are aspects of them that do perhaps look advantageous to babies. As you've just said, um, if mom is living in a very stressful environment and therefore um, the baby is gestating in a stressful environment or the baby is receiving milk that has stress hormones in it or whatever, the baby is going to feel that. Is that going to be good for the baby? In some ways, maybe, because the baby might be more equipped to deal with you know whatever stressful situations are there. But research conversely, on the other hand, has shown that um, some babies then do not benefit from this kind of uh, of behavior because physiologically then they are prone to just simply be more stressed out or more neurotic or more nervous. Um, it can have effects in both ways, which is kind of uh, awesome, but also very difficult to study because there certainly doesn't seem to be one consensus about the direction that these kinds of effects can take. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine that, yeah, if it's, you know, if there's a drought, for example, and you're a, a um, female elephant, you know, gestating a baby elephant, then that baby elephant, you know, needs to be more stressed and anxious when it's born so that it can, you know, have be motivated to find, you know, water or whatever. So that's, yeah, I think that's sort of like the argument for why this might be adaptive. But on the other hand, you know, in our current world, being stressed, it, you know, has a lot of negative effects uh, later on in life. Well, that's it. And I think, you know, these are some of the most fascinating questions out there, that, you know, that are we're looking to what the long term effects of exposure to stress hormones are um, in terms of, you know, how do we how do babies grow up, even if they're no longer receiving stressful milk or stressful <laughs> gestational conditions? How does that how how are we going to see those impacts 10, 15 years later? And that's really fascinating because it seems to be quite substantial. Um, and so mom's environment, you know, like we we joke about these kinds of things when we say our temple and so on, but it, it's literally that because there's so much that's so important about how our bodies change. And I guess for me, that was maybe one of the most poignant things writing the book was that we become different animals entirely through this process, through the way that our body changes to create this baby. And we never change back. Like our body doesn't change to, the, to how it was before ever again. Um, and that 
you know, whether that's an increased state of stress or whether it's just a changed uh, physiological status, it's just different. And that's something we haven't really appreciated, I think, um, in the biological literature all that much. Yeah. And, and for me, that was one of the most difficult things uh, I experienced about becoming a mom was was that change. And, you know, it, it took me years to kind of accept it and come to terms with it. Me too. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think I'm, fi- you know, finally getting there. Who knows? But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if there, you know, I, I, I one thing I really liked about your book is that you, you know, you were you were writing from the perspective of the mother, which we often don't hear about, especially in the non-human animal world. You know, really, the focus is always on the offspring. And, you know, the mother, uh, you know, she did her job if the offspring right, survive. Right. Yeah. And, you she know, pretty much got them out. And forget about it. it. Right. Yeah. Um, so so I want to talk a little bit about um, a topic that I was really surprised to see you cover in the book, uh, which I had never really considered before, uh, which are sort of the the kind of emotional or mood regulation changes that happen with pregnancy, which, you know, we talk about in, in humans quite a lot, probably not enough. But, you know, certainly uh, it's we there are many more frequent conversations now about things like postpartum depression and sort of the you know, the, the mood issues that can uh, occur as a result of the, the changes in, in hormones through pregnancy. Um, so tell us a little bit about what is the evidence for similar effects or, you know, different things that happen uh, in, the, in the rest of the animal world in terms of, so, say, depression and, and pregnancy. Yeah, so there was some very compelling work um, being done in lots, several primate species that showed um, females do suffer from not only depression in some cases, um, but actually gestation and postpartum related depression. So symptoms that can be um, fairly, fairly, um, with some certainty, we know that things like rocking holding oneself and rocking back and forth or um, huddling down, being extremely quiet, not seeking any kind of um, stimulation, like depressive kinds of behavior. So we can use things like that to, to have a look at how different females are operating under different conditions. We can also look for um, indicators of violent behavior towards infants, which is another factor to consider when you're thinking about mom's emotional state. A lot of um, primate moms are abusive and it's, it's perplexing because on one hand it's, you know, is it more than a mom spanking a kid for being naughty or is it um, that this mom who is displaying a suite of somewhat depressive behaviors is also being unnecessarily rough with their with their offspring, and we do see that. Um, and we have there have been correlational studies done with certain um, aspects of blood, neurotransmitters, hormones. What what are some? And we basically at this point only have correlational differences, but there's definitely some um, neurotransmitters that things that 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 aren't all that different from what we would see in a human female with this kind of affliction. So yeah, that that's something I really wanted to talk about because I've actually had, I, I suffered from postpartum depression um, for all four of the children that I had. And it just made such a huge difference to the kind of mom that I was. And I actually was able to get help um, in terms of a pharmaceutical product, which made me into a better mom. So that's a real weird biological question to get your head around. Like, how can other primate females cope with this thing that's kind of natural that throws us off, though? 
um, and that doesn't really lend itself to to us thriving or our babies thriving. It's it's kind of one of those. Is it a misfire? Is it something that we really hadn't considered about the brain and evolution? Maybe. Yeah, and I think I, I'm glad you mentioned it from the perspective of behavior, because of course, you know, someone could make the argument, well, how do you know if a macaque is sad? Um, and and they sort of, you know, they sort of equate postpartum depression with sadness. But in fact, um, we have behavioral observations that it's not necessarily that you feel sad; it's that you don't have, you know, you just feel unmotivated and apathetic, and you don't, you know, or you feel sort of like, as you mentioned, this kind of, you know, anger towards the child, and 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 you know, have potential for harm. And that so sometimes, you know, people think, well, I'm not particularly sad like you know to me always um, the kind of really big warning sign is when you hear someone say oh well the baby would be better off without me you know it's not that they feel like oh you know I feel so sad it's just that you know I feel that I'm ineffective and, and I would be you know be better off if I wasn't there does that equate with your experience of, of PPD or, or? Absolutely. I, and in fact, mine was very different every time. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's something that isn't very well known or understood um, in the public. Of course, for people who haven't either had a partner with it or who haven't had it themselves. For me, my postpartum looked a lot more like anxiety than it did depression. It would be um, in immense stress, immense worry about, about this baby, like that the baby would, something would happen to the baby, um, worry to, to a point that, that wouldn't, my life couldn't function normally because I was too busy looking in closets for people hurting my baby, like, you know, just, and, and it's so hard to describe what that is, but it, it is something that falls under the suite of behaviors we, we characterize as part of postpartum depression. And so when we look then to animals, we have to also appreciate that postpartum depression might look like intense anxiety. Um, and we also see things like that. We see mothers that will not let their baby primates out of their sight within, you know, a foot of them and that hold on to them and don't let them go. Um, and is this good for their babies? Absolutely not. Their babies become little basket cases, if you will, because they aren't getting a chance to develop and grow as they as they should normally. So that's another aspect of postpartum that isn't necessarily, yeah, just like a macaque looking sad. Maybe it's a we would characterize that as being overprotective, but in, in really, in actual fact, it might be related to uh, an aspect of postpartum depression. So the other really controversial subject uh, amongst mothers and the human species is lactation. And, uh, you know, we've had this big swing over the last decade or so to, you know, people saying breast is best and, and that, that really every effort should be made to breastfeed their babies. Um, and that's led to some pretty, uh, pretty negative and difficult consequences. I mean, babies have, you know, starved or gotten dehydrated because their, their mothers are trying to feed them from uh, breast without making enough milk. And, you know, whereas a bottle formula would save a child's life. So um, I wanted to touch a little bit because you, you have a whole chapter on lactation in mammals. Um, you know, for me, when I had my son, uh, you know, obviously, labor was hard, <laughs> delivery was hard. But you know, it was really hard breastfeeding. It was, it was way okay. harder. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and some baby like, it's so hard at first, some babies, they don't know what to do first time moms don't really know what to do. It takes, you know, it's, it's certainly not something that's totally intuitive at first. And I would take that even back one more step to say that childbirth in humans is so, um, so much more difficult than it is for all other primates that I think in this super tumultuous time that a human female is experiencing after this birth process, which, which is like, 
God, <laughs> so big, which you just said, but it, it's, it is a lot more traumatic than, for example, even our closest relatives, like a chimp might um, experience. It's much more traumatic. So I feel like we're all kind of in a bit of a state of shock when we're expected to, to um, initiate this very profound thing, which is, which is lactation. Um, I would certainly absolutely always advocate for, for common sense and for the use of products where products are necessary I do think that we, um, in some areas of Western society, do go to formula too quickly. We make it too easy to not use to not use breast milk, and I do think that's bad because there's just so much in breast milk that we could never mirror adequately in a formula. We could certainly mirror nutrition. We can't mirror. Um, neurotransmitters and hormones and all of those basic molecular factors that come from mom directly and that we don't even know what they are. But that said, it's a, it's a big, it's a big unknown. I, my youngest daughter, she didn't particularly like feeding on the breast. She stopped at three months. Uh, Is she a worse kid for that now? No, (laughs) like, I don't, I don't think so. You know, she just, just, she did what she did. So I feel like yeah, we, we kind of sometimes forget how basic and how important the process of lactation is. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about whether there are other animal, or ma- other mammals, I should say, since that's by definition a mammalian trait, that have trouble lactating. Is there any evidence that, that there are other species that sort of, you know, for which it isn't this kind of, you know, the way we think about it, oh, easy, you know, put the you know, put a baby on a nipple and everything is fine. And just um, go. Yeah. Well, that's a really great point, Andre. I never thought about that, but that's an excellent point. I I guess, you know, what the unfortunate, sad bottom line is, uh, you know, in the animal kingdom, if a little pup or runt or kit or whatever you want to call them, if that little one can't get it figured out, that little one is just going to die. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whereas in the human world, we take great pains to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, But yeah, I guess it could be one of those things where the the ones who can't figure that out get weeded out immediately. Um, Which is which is weird because, well, human babies are so, so, so pathetic when they are first born. Um, Most other mammals are not as pathetic as a human baby. So most other mammals do have the ability to kind of get themselves figured out, you know, like, for example, a baby elephant gets born, it had, you know, a giraffe get, you know, falls like five feet to the ground. And it's like, okay, I guess I better get up and start eating. Um, They kind of have intuitively a bit more sense than human babies do. And again, this takes it back to that very first thing I mentioned, which is uh, the way that humans have to birth our babies makes it so that they are very pathetic at first, which makes it also that it's a very difficult situation for mom and baby immediately after birth. There's all these kind of things that are that are lined up to to make it very hard for us. So once the baby now is 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 functioning, did you did you notice or did you you know in your readings did you did you see any differences in terms of how mothers discipline or teach their their offspring uh, in the animal kingdom that that is something that we can think about in our own species? Yeah, and I loved this because this is actually where we start to see a real reflection of mom's personality. Whether you are, you know, a four-legged mammal across the African plains or an aquatic mammal darting around the northern seas, you see aspects of mom's personality in the way she is a mom. 
And, and that is super cool. Again, reflecting back to that, that aspect of, you know, the way that I parent my child, my children is probably different than the way you parent yours. Although there's some overreaching similarities. We, you know, we have our own foods that we like, we have our own stores that we like to shop at and things like that. So we definitely see a good amount of, of maternal personality in terms of uh, how moms teach social behaviors how moms will teach foraging behaviors and often then times more for sexual behaviors. It's the kids kind of figuring those things out, pups playing um, and especially the males playing with each other. They'll have a lot of instructional um, experiential kind of kind of things to to learn. But um, yeah, just seeing how moms, there's this one video that's always making the rounds on Facebook. There's a orangutan mom who's constantly going back and fishing her 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 infant and it keeps trying to get away from her and she just grabs it and throws it down in front of her and you know every mom who's watched that video is like yep I've been there <laughs> so it's yeah it's delightful to see the the diversity and and the way we can all kind of relate to that similarity yeah and unfortunately those moms can't just hand an ipad to the baby <laughs> oh right oh what did the world do before there were, I know oh my god um, so I want to remind our listeners uh, that Dr. Karen Barndar's book, uh, Wild Moms, Motherhood in the Animal Kingdom, is available at booksellers everywhere. And I, I just wanted to end uh, with a, probably the most poignant chapter uh, in, in your book and just, just to have you talk a little bit about it, um, which is it's a di- very difficult subject, but it's mourning. So what happens when uh, offspring are, you know, do not survive um, and, and how the mothers react? Are there any kind of generalizations that you can tell us about what what happens, you know, amongst different species? Uh, You know, is it tied to how much investment the mother made uh, that, you know, we we see sort of the length of mourning or the effect of the death being um, more significant? What can you tell us about mourning in the animal kingdom that, you know, might might help us relate to our own experiences? Yeah, this is a this was a tough chapter to write because, you, you know, what we can say about mourning is we can we can describe it. We can't really test it. We can't really do stats on it. We can only sort of see when it happens, how animals react to it. And what we've seen for many mammals, and I'm thinking particularly um, African um, mammals like elephants, giraffes, females are the ones who stick around with other females. There are two times in a female's life that that the only person or not person that's the wrong word the only other individual who can help with a modicum of reality is another mom and that is during birth and also after the death of a baby and so we often see males taking a very um, markedly peripheral stance um, after a baby has died females will often circle the body stay with the body Mothers especially will remain with their with their dead infants for as long as they can. And of course, since there are, these are areas that have a lot of scavenging predators, things like hyenas, um, they they don't often get the opportunity to stay with their babies for too long. But there are some um, populations in um, arid sort of savanna desert regions um, of Africa where uh, some gosh, I'm, I'm thinking. Even some uh, chimps, some orangutan species, some baboon species will actually, moms will carry their dead infants for many months um, as though they are little dolls. And this, yeah, this is something that's quite perplexing 
Because, you know, when we're thinking about death, one of the primary things that researchers ask is, you know, is there an appreciation for the fact that this infant is dead? Uh, does the mother have some kind of cognitive awareness surrounding the fact that this infant is not going to come alive again? Um, and, and the way that they're acting by carrying around these corpses suggests that they do appreciate that the babies aren't coming back because the babies are no longer holding on to them as they would if they were alive. The babies are basically hanging, you know, like bodies. Um, and so the moms seem to have an understanding the babies aren't with them or alive, and yet they continue to do this for several months. They, they might even be copulating, you know, resumed copulation while they're still holding on to their dead infant. I mean, that speaks to an incredibly complicated psychology of what is happening in the brain of this female in the mourning process. And it's something we don't know a lot about as researchers. And I, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to study unless we figure out how to speak directly to chimpanzees or to baboons or whoever's doing this. But what we can infer is that it's an individual process and it is devastating it, without question. Do you see any of the similar behaviors when it's a miscarriage versus, or do you see miscarriage in, in other animals? Yeah, you do. Um, and so miscarriage is, uh, is kind of interesting because there is a lot of primates, especially, that can um, actually induce their own miscarriages. It's called the Bruce effect, um, named after the scientist who first um, discovered that it happens. And oftentimes, if conditions change, um, as in, yeah, weather-wise, maybe, but more often what we're talking about is the arrival of a new male, um, of a new potentially threatening male who would who would kill the, the, the offspring of the babies, uh, of the females that they were carrying anyway. Um, because if a new alpha comes in, he's going to, you know, get rid of all the existing offspring so he can start making his own. And so in that kind of situation, females, if they are pregnant, have the and we don't know how it happens, whether they can actually decide that this is going to happen or whether it's something their bodies just do for them naturally. It's likely the latter. And and so abortion happens quite frequently because um, we can tell when a female is pregnant very easily through blood work um, and a female can be pregnant you know, during one sampling period and then not pregnant the next. So we definitely know that it happens quite frequently. So many fascinating stories and tidbits in your book. Um, Karen Bondar, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Hearing all these stories of how, you know, parenthood is handled in the animal kingdom just reminds me of just how not normal this process is, or at least not normalized for sure. Like there is no such thing as normal. And even for us as humans, uh, I'm sure like our definitions of of how offspring have raised and and what it means to be sort of like a, a family and and be parents, whether mothers or fathers, has evolved over thousands of years. So I'm wondering, is there such a thing as like the perfect cultural picture of what being a mom is in society, even though we try to paint that as true. Yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting to, when you think about it, that this idea of the nuclear family, you know, a, a male male father, a female mother and two kids um, is really a 20th century phenomenon. You know, um, there, you know, there, so there isn't a huge even in human history uh, sort of background on this, but somehow it became this kind of ideal um, then and has, has, has sort of 
cause a lot of pain for people whose families don't conform to it. Um, and luckily now we're in an era where, you know, it's not so important. You know, in the animal kingdom, I think the take home message is that you adapt to circumstances. You know, if resources are weak, those little kangaroo babies are thrown out of the punch, <laughs> out of the pouch, you know, if if there's lots of if there's abundance of stuff, then, you know, maybe people have more offspring and or animals have more offspring and they survive and so forth. Um, and that, you know, so many of these animals are really do adapt to their circumstances and uh, change accordingly. That resource picture does like incredibly resonate with me. And like we live in these times when uh, the demands on humanity are are increasing, like People are working more, they're away from their families more just to sort of scrape their way by in culture. And so the, the idea that we might be moving towards a model that more people are involved in the uh, raising of, of children, like parents, mother, or, you know, fathers, mothers, extended family, friends, becoming much more of a norm, a return to probably how it was during hunter-gatherer I mean, definitely, time. De definitely how it was even a couple hundred years ago when you had just, you know, people, more people involved in the raising of kids. I mean, this idea that you live very far away from your extended family is very new. Um, so I think that that actually is something that, you know, we, we are realizing the value uh, of family nearby. There is one truism what? that we learned. And being a mom is hard, regardless of species. Yes, absolutely. I, I will I will drink to that. <laughs> so that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Rahala, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiring minds. And for five bucks or more a month, you get an ad free version of our show. Find us on Twitter at inquiring show and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, pictures of your own uh, very cute offspring or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.